This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, let me first thank Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstonley, the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer of the Department of State, as well as Chief Diversity Officer at USAID, Nena Diallo, for appearing before our committee today. I believe this is the first time the committee has held a hearing on this topic with senior department leadership dedicated to this issue. Our premier American foreign policy institutions must set the bar for others to follow and harnessing the incredible diversity of the American people. Our different points of view, backgrounds, and languages is crucial to not only our nation's security, but also our global economic and other interests. I've been working on efforts to promote diversity at the State Department and USAID now for more than two decades. And while I'm disappointed to say progress has been slow, I'm pleased to see both of you here today. Only last year, the head of the American Foreign Service Association said, quote, the, the State Department, quote, was more diverse in 1986, literally, than it is now. In the last 20 years, there has been a 2% decrease in the proportion of black employees at the State Department, with the majority still in the civil service, and Latino numbers have barely budged. And USAID is no better with 6% of its workforce Latino, while the Latino population of the United States overall is almost 19%. This year, we are commemorating the Pickering Program's 30th, Wrangell Program's 20th, and Payne Program's 10th anniversary, all programs created to increase diversity at our agencies. But as we commemorate, we need to know if these programs are actually accomplishing their goals. I can count on my fingers the number of ambassadors and mission directors who are people of color. So we've got a lot of work to do. Not fully utilizing the strategic advantage of America's diverse talent pool to engage our allies and counter our competitors and adversaries on the global stage is a vital error. And let me just give one example of that. I know some of our colleagues will probably be unhappy about today's hearing. Uh, but the reality is that when I was in China, our uh, chief in China in charge of democracy and human rights programs was an African-American who was an active participant in the civil rights struggle. His personal history, his personal eyewitness to the accounts of trying to change the course of events in our country were a powerful voice to those in China seeking to create an opportunity for themselves in terms of greater openings for democracy and human rights. I can recount easily over the course of 30 years of doing foreign policy, dozens of moments in different parts of the world where the few people that we have had who come from diverse backgrounds have been able to make a powerful case and liaison with the peoples of those countries where we are being represented. That cannot be purchased. That cannot be bought. And while it's an error in terms of uh, where we've been at, I'm pleased to say this administration is trying to fix. It is also one that nations like Russia and China continue to exploit by using their propaganda tools to highlight the gap between our promises and rhetoric when it comes to racial justice and our actions. They paint us as hypocrites who talk a big game on equality and human rights, the very foundation of democracy, 
but say we don't deliver. Our diplomats are on the front lines of countering their narratives. We must modernize our diplomacy and development efforts to meet the demands of the 21st century. That means recruiting from all across America, from the cities and coasts of New Jersey to the border towns of Texas and Idaho. It means cultivating and retaining a diverse workforce that can take advantage of our nation's technology advances and keep up with other industries. It means ensuring workstations and foreign mission buildings are accessible for those with disabilities. And it means committing to increasing morale so that people aren't leaving mid-career after years of investment in extensive language and diplomatic school skills. So let me be clear. As chief diversity officers, you not only have the full weight of the White House and your leadership supporting you, I want you to know that many of us support you as well. I certainly do. That's why I'm launching a series of initiatives to advance the diversity legislation, resources, and recruitment pipelines we need to keep our nation competitive in global affairs for years to come. This is also an economic imperative. Uh, we, we, I often tell when I speak to the, the corporate leadership in our country about diversity, not for diversity's sake, but for the bottom line. Study after study shows that more diverse corporate boards and senior executive management means more profitability. And these are, these are studies done by private entities. Also, as I tell groups as a simple example of the past, Chevrolet found out what diversity means when they try to sell the Chevy Nova in Latin America. For those of you who don't know Spanish, when you pronounce Nova, in Spanish, it means it won't move, it won't go. And so that's just a simple example. I don't care what type of marketing program you have, it's a car that says it's not gonna move, it's not gonna go, it's not gonna sell. And so that's just one of many simple examples where in terms of the economics uh, of how to do business and, and get, get greater market share for our country is incredibly important. So today I look forward to hearing from our witnesses on how they're advancing these goals at their agency. I also want to know what is needed to do your jobs effectively. And if you're not getting what you need, I want to know why. The clock is ticking. It's been a year and a half since these efforts began, and I want to see progress. Finally, to those who might be reticent to support these efforts, I want to point out that one of our other great institutions, the United States military, has long been a place where people of all backgrounds fight alongside each other and where they can rise and an opportunity to be given, including the highest levels of our military. As a result, our military is the greatest fighting force in the world. Our diplomatic corps and our development programs should be strengthened in the same way. We must, as diplomatic Nobel laureate Ralph Bunchy once said, quote, adhere staunchly to the basic principle that anything less than full equality is not enough. With that, let me turn to the ranking member for his opening statement. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and, uh, and kudos to you for uh, pursuing this issue. I know you've been on the forefront of this and uh, certainly uh, deserve credit uh, for uh, the progress that's been made, and I know you'll keep up those efforts. Uh, I, too, am interested uh, in diversity, although I come from, at it from a little different viewpoint than you do, but uh, diversity of all sorts uh, is important uh, in our uh, agencies. Our foreign affairs agencies and the Department of State in particular have wrestled with issues of diversity in the civilian national security workforce for generations. For years, we've heard the department say that its workforce was going to, quote, look like America, end quote. 
However, its workforce still does not look like America. Employees from urban and especially coastal areas are still heavily overrepresented, while non-coastal, suburban, and especially rural areas and interior areas of America are barely represented. This is at least partially and substantially the result uh, of the fact that the department only offers foreign service oral exams in Washington, D.C., uh, dozens of times a year and twice a year in San Francisco, both coastal cities and two of America's most expensive. Let's take my state, Idaho, for example. And Idaho would have to buy an airline ticket to either of these cities, taking multiple legs each way to D.C., then pay for multiple nights at a hotel. A trip like this would cost uh, more than $1,000. For professional already in the workforce, they would also need to take a va vacation days and also uh, find someone to look after their children if uh, they were uh, single with children while they travel across the country. All for the privilege of applying for a job at the State Department. This burden comes only after they have already decided they want to try and join the Foreign Service. What about recruitment to join in special ranks? The department uses diplomats in residence scattered across the country to help highlight how great a career in diplomacy can be. Yet only a handful of these people exist. There's only one diplomat in residence for all of Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, Colorado, and Montana, and that person is based in Denver. So if a University of Idaho student wanted to meet with the local diplomat in residence, he or she would have to drive 17 hours to Denver. In fact, it would actually be faster to drive to the Pacific Northwest diplomat who is based in Berkeley, California. That drive is only 14 hours. The truth is, State Department's continued promise to develop a worse workforce that looks like America isn't centered on representing all of America based on things like geographic diversity. It seems devoted to representing the ideas and opinions of coastal views and uh, philosophy, which does not highlight diversity uh, of all of America with its broad and stunning greatness. Similarly, at USAID, there are so many hiring mechanisms that the agency can't even provide credible data on the success or failure of its own efforts to enhance diversity. Our foreign affairs agencies must be serious about all forms, all forms of diversity to include participation from our veterans. They have sacrificed a lot to protect our nation and freedom, and their perspective and experience brings diversity of thought to solving tough diplomatic challenges. We need more and better from the Department and USAID on these issues, and I look forward to hearing how the Department uh, intends uh, to do a much better job of developing a, a workforce that represents all of America, and especially its interior. And again, kudos to the Chairman for his efforts in this regard. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, it's uh, on to introduce our two witnesses today. Uh, our privilege to welcome Ambassador Gina Abercrombie-Winston Lee, the State Department's first Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer charged with, quote, advancing national security by building a more diverse, equitable, inclusive, and accessible department to handle the foreign policy challenges of the 21st century. A consummate diplomat, Ambassador Abercrombie-Winston Lee has served her country for over three decades as the longest serving U.S. Ambassador to Malta, first woman to lead a diplomatic mission in Saudi Arabia, and as chair of the Middle East Area Studies at the Foreign Service Institute. In addition to serving at the National Security Council, she also served as a fellow on this very committee under then-ranking member Biden. We're also joined by Chief Diversity Officer Nena Diallo, who's remitted to advance diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility among USAID's people, partners, and programs at home and abroad. 
as part of USAID's international development and humanitarian efforts around the globe. Her public service career has included work as the Director of Diversity and Inclusion at the Millennium Challenge Corporation. She has also led diversity efforts in the private sector as a Senior Vice President for Marketing and Communications in Global Media. Welcome to you both. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. Uh, and I'd ask you both to try to summarize your statements in about five minutes or so, so that then we can have uh, a conversation. Uh, Ambassador Winston Chairman Menendez, Ranking Minister, Member Ish, members of the committee, I am delighted to speak with you today about the State Department's efforts to advance diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, DEIA. I'm pleased to be joined by my counterpart from USAID, Nina Diallo. Secretary Blinken appointed me as the department's first standalone chief diversity and inclusion officer 15 months ago. Since that time, the department has made significant strides to advance DEIA within our organization and build the foundation for sustained success. We've done this by increasing transparency and accountability for processes and personnel. Our goal is to improve our entire organization. Any business wants a highly productive workforce that operates maximally. It's not enough to recruit a representative workforce. We have to keep them. We must leverage the strength of our diversity to ensure we have the strongest foreign policy to meet 21st century challenges. We're focused on examining our organization holistically to identify where inequities exist, not just in whom we hire, but among who stays and who advances. The department is committed to using evidence-based approaches to identify barriers to equitable, merit-based hiring and career outcomes. By analyzing disaggregated data, we can identify where potential inequities exist and recommend specific actions to address them. This is why my first priority was to create a DEIA data working group. Since its formation, we've compiled a demographic baseline of the de entire Department of State by rank, job category, and bureau. With this established baseline, we can evaluate the effectiveness of our initiatives and track our progress. In this way, we will remain unified in opportunity, unified in earned recognition and support. Data analysis is key to guiding, measuring, and sustaining an effective DEIA program, which is why I respectfully ask for your support to continue providing my office with the funding and staffing resources needed for this important work. Another change I'm proud to tell you about is that advancing DEIA is now tied to the Foreign Service Promotions and Civil Service Performance Evaluations. Everyone must play a part in, to advance DEIA as an organizational culture. Why? Because it will improve the quality of our foreign policy, model the values that we promote abroad, and ensure the best rise to the top because of merit. To hold employees accountable for this, the department has created a dedicated DEIA core precept for the Foreign Service and a DEIA work element for the Civil Service. With the dedicated core precept, provides a way to recognize and reward positive contributions to the DEIA mission. We must also improve accountability and uproot toxic workplace behavior. 
as the department has made significant strides to educate employees on how to address toxic behavior, reports of harassment have increased. Staffing to investigate and respond has not. The department's FY23 budget includes a request for new positions and funding to create an anti-bullying program and to properly staff our anti-harassment program. We can correct toxic behaviors and eliminate the resulting distractions in the workplace that impede our best work in service to the American people. The department's five-year DEIA strategic plan has been released to the workforce. It's the most forward-leaning, ambitious, robust DEIA strategic plan the department has ever created. My office will oversee the plan's implementation and has already formed an implementation team. It's made up of representatives from bureaus and offices with responsibility for action items in the plan. We're already taking steps to reconfirm our commitment to make a truly merit-based organization. Lastly, I applaud the department's recent changes to the Foreign Service Generalist exam process. The Foreign Service Officer Test served as a distorted barrier to entry for the Foreign Service and has never been a predictor of future job performance. And let's be clear, there are many highly successful Foreign Service officers and career ambassadors serving today whose entry requirements did not include taking or passing the FSOT. Starting last month, the department now takes a more holistic approach by evaluating a candidate's FSOT performance along with their skills and experience when deciding who will advance to the Foreign Service oral assessment. For candidates who miss the FSOT cutoff by a few points but have valuable, relevant skills and experience, this change allows their other strengths to be considered. This levels the playing field and allows the department to examine more candidates from a wider variety of backgrounds. I'm grateful to this committee for its attention to this decades-long problem within the Department of State. With your support, we will continue to work until we have a workforce that does truly reflect and leverage the diverse talents of the nation we represent. Thank you for providing me with this opportunity to speak today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Ms. Diallum? Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to speak about the progress USAID has made to date and the remaining opportunities to do more on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, or DEIA, within our agency. Thank you for your leadership in this space. I also want to acknowledge Ambassador Gina Ambercombe-Winstanley and her work at the Department of State. Our agencies are working together to ensure we maximize and accelerate efforts toward our shared interests. With the leadership and support of President Joe Biden, Administrator Samantha Power, and a strong bipartisan coalition in Congress, USCID is uniting its DEIA efforts, an ambitious undertaking I've been privileged to lead since being sworn in this past March. As the agency's first chief DEIA officer, I oversee our DEIA efforts, not only in our workforce and workplace, but also in how we deliver assistance, design programs, and partner. My office does not undertake this work alone, but together with DEIA advisors who are hired within bureaus and independent offices, as well as the diversity councils across the agency. I would also like to take this time to thank the committee and your colleagues for, for, for providing this office with a dedicated budget to realize our DEIA objectives. 
My office oversees USAID's DEIA strategic plan. This seeks to reduce potential barriers to accessing benefits and services, procurement and contracting opportunities, and agency actions and programs. We work collectively to recruit, retain, and promote the agency's talent. This work is not without its challenges when it comes to underrepresented populations. My submitted testimony goes into the details of how we are addressing these challenges, but let me highlight three ways we're making progress on our agenda. First, recruitment. We have expanded our affirmative employment division within the Office of Civil Rights to include the establishment of a robust special emphasis program to identify and remove any potential barriers to equal employment opportunity in agency policies, programs, processes, and practices for all persons, including members of groups that are traditionally underrepresented or have been historically subjected to discrimination in the workforce. We are working to ensure USAID is an employer of choice for all individuals with disabilities. Thus, we are providing, prioritizing the use of Schedule A hiring authority for individuals with disabilities and disabled veterans non-competitive hiring authorities. We're also working to diversify our candidate pool through new and renewed partnerships with historically black colleges and universities, tribal and indigenous colleges and universities, and institutions serving Hispanic, Asian American, and Native American Pacific Islander communities. These partnerships help diversify our talent pipelines and provide opportunities to collaborate with USAID as thought leaders in global development and expand our partner base to ensure minority-serving institutions play a meaningful role in our humanitarian and development work. Second, we continue to invest in the career advancement and professional development of our current workforce. For staff from underrepresented groups, we are expanding our support for the International Career Advancement Program and the Donald M. Payne International Development Fellowship Program. These programs provide highly qualified candidates with leadership development and valuable firsthand experience both in Congress and in the agency. Since arriving at USAID, we have doubled our support in both programs and will look to continue building off that success. As a learning organization, we are committed to capacity building for our global workforce. That's why we have expanded access to DEIA-related training through our respectful, inclusive, and safe environments learning and engagement platform. USAID's RISE training has reached more than 6,000 individual staff members globally since June of 2020. USAID has developed our first ever DEIA survey, which when completed, will establish a baseline for DEIA-related metrics and enable longitudinal, longitudinal evaluation across USAID's entire workforce. I'm also working to ensure that DEIA competencies and objectives are included into annual civil service performance evaluations and foreign service precepts across all work levels, including senior leaders. This is a clear step forward in ensuring leadership accountability for creating an inclusive work environment. Third, USAID is committed to expanding the universe of implementing partners. Last November, we launched the Work with UCID platform a free online resource hub to support new and existing partners with the knowledge, tools, and networks to navigate how to work with us. We are streamlining acquisition and assistance practices to enhance equity and inclusion for both our domestic and international partners. We are updating and enhancing our policies to ensure that our programming is inclusive, equitable, and reaches marginalized and underserved populations, including persons with disabilities, LGBTQI people, indigenous peoples, and non-dominant racial, ethnic, and religious groups. Our inclusive development approach ensures we do no harm to those who are vulnerable and marginalized, and that we intentionally and proactively include them. We believe all these efforts at USAID will help us bring diverse perspectives and talents into our workforce, 
and across our humanitarian assistance and development programming, and provide opportunity and equitable access in a deliberate way. In closing, echoing testimony from Ambassador Abercrombie Stanley, I am grateful to the members of this committee for your support of our ongoing efforts to strengthen and improve development outcomes for the communities where we work through a comprehensive and unified DEIA strategy. With your support, we will continue to ensure that USAID reflects the values we strive to live up to as Americans. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you both. We'll start a, a round of uh, five-minute questions. Um, uh, Ambassador Winsley, uh, let's start off with the answer to this question. Why diversity? Diversity is at the foundational level of our nation. We come from everywhere, and we should be represented by everyone who is part of this great nation. We have talked about human rights, the opportunity in the United States, and we have to show it. Great ideas come from every background of Americans, and we know that the Department of State it benefits from having us all there. So in short, we have to represent our nation with representatives from every part of our nation. So we do this not for the sake of diversity itself, not because it's the nice or right thing to do, because it is the empowering thing to do on behalf of our nation. Um, it is clear to me uh, that we look for an array of skills. We certainly at USAID don't send a rocket scientist to help uh, countries in terms of agriculture. We look for different experiences. Uh, and so at the end of the day, those different experiences are also manifested in the diversity of our people and their experiences as well. Now, we were able to obtain, can we get these charts? We were able to obtain demographic uh, trends data from GAO, OPM, and the department that I'd like to share that is quite concerning. Um, the red bars on this graph that we are about to put up represent white employees at the department. It shows that in the 1980s, the State Department was much more successful uh, in its diversity efforts than in recent times. From 1981 to 2002, you can see the percent of non-white employees, the blue and other colored bars, more than doubled, from 13 to 28 percent. But over the last 20 years, racial diversity at state barely budged at all even as the Latino population has substantially grown across the country. From 2002 to 2021, the percent of non-white employees only rose from 28 to 34 percent, and African Americans actually decreased from 17 to 15 percent. And when we look, uh, may we have the other chart? And when we look at the red sections on this second figure, we see that the senior ranks of the State Department remain largely white in both the Foreign Service and Civil Service, with the senior Foreign Service and senior Executive Services almost 85% white. It comes as little surprise then that only roughly 12% of U.S. ambassadors 
come from underrepresented communities, and only 40% of ambassadors are women. And while this committee plays a critical role in confirming ambassadors, we also need more diverse candidates to consider. As I noted in my opening statement, the State Department sets the stage for what happens in our other agencies. So if we get this right at State, we get it right at USAID, at DFC, Exim, Peace Corps, MCC, and the entire foreign affairs infrastructure. The first graph uh, demonstrates change is possible. And we all know change comes most quickly when it comes from the top. We're living in historic times. For close to two decades, I've called for diversity initiatives to address underrepresentation in our foreign affairs infrastructure. Last year, Ambassador, you were appointed as the State Department's first standalone Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer in April of 2021 by Secretary Blinken. And Chief Diversity Officer Diallo, you were appointed by the Administrator earlier this year in March. We also passed the one-year anniversary of the President's June 2021 Executive Order 1040 of 14035, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and Accessibility in the Federal Workforce, and the February 2021 President's National Security Memorandum prioritizing diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility as a national security imperative. So I applaud these efforts, but I am concerned that the White House has yet to allow you to release the diversity and inclusion strategic plans you were required to draft by executive order 14035 a year ago. And what signal that sends? So I have a couple of questions. When do you anticipate the plan being released to State Department and USAID personnel, the public and Congress? Thank you, Senator, for the question, Mr. Chairman. Uh, we released the report to the workforce yesterday. We got permission yesterday afternoon or the night before, and we released it immediately. Um, it is on our SharePoint site and released to our employee organizations so that people can see it. We will have what I believe is going to be a more user-friendly version up in a couple of weeks as well so that people can interact with it. But we have released it. And when will Congress get that? Uh, I, I would say at least a couple of weeks so that we get a version that you will actually be able to understand. I, I look forward to uh, knowing when that's going to happen and to receiving it. Okay. Uh, how is the White House supporting uh, you and your efforts to change these worrying demographic trends, especially in the senior ranks? Thank you. It has been a strong cheerleader for our efforts. The demand signal, as you noted, comes from the top, from the president, from the secretary, and I have the opportunity to continue that demand signal within our organization. We are very serious about this now. The statistics that you put up there are deeply troubling for all of us. But we recognize that and we have put resources and personnel and leadership from the top to this problem. So we have put in place accountability factors with the core precept, that is a way that we are communicating to the entire organization that this counts, that we are taking it seriously and we're holding people accountable. If you want to be promoted, you will help the organization be better, more diverse, more inclusive, taking steps with regard to accessibility. We are in the midst of conversations, reviewing options on how to increase transparency and accessibility with regard to senior positions. 
from the Deputy Assistant Secretary on up. We're, we have changes that I'm sure are going to be very impactful for the entire organization in the next several months. We have changed how we're doing our Foreign Service oral exam uh, with regard to using the, the uh, technology that we've all come to know and perhaps not love of, with remote interviews, and that's going to help us expand our reach throughout the nation. So we've taken several steps, but most importantly, ensuring that the entire organization understands it counts. We're holding people accountable. If you want to be promoted, we're holding people accountable for their behavior if they are not supportive in making us the best organization that we can be. Well, I have many other questions, but uh, in deference to my colleagues, let me turn to the ranking member, Senator Ruth. Well, thank you. I, uh, I heard uh, your statements, and I think uh, everything that's been said certainly is laudable. What I'd like to hear a little more is about the details of recruiting. Could uh, both of you uh, touch on that a bit? Uh, how, uh, how do you go out and recruit specifically for the agencies, and then specifically, how do you uh, focus on diversity recruitment in detail? Either way, jump ball. Sure. Thank you, Senator, for your question. Um, through the Global Development Partnership Initiative, uh, USAID will build a responsive and resourceful and resilient workforce um, by increasing the size and diversity of our permanent uh, career workforce and providing flexibility to hire non-career direct staff. And how did you do that specifically? Did you run ads in magazines? Did you go on TV? Did you do it on, how did you do that mechanically? It's a current, it's a current program that we're running right now. And so what we're doing is through those methods, sir, and through non-traditional means as well, including outreach to minority-serving institutions. Um, USID held its first HBCU uh, conference last year and uh, the first uh, Hispanic-serving institution conference as well, where we had about 3,000 attendees. Where were those held? It was virtual, sir. I see. Um, so in addition to that outreach, um, it increases the awareness of uh, USCID and our, and our jobs. Um, we've also uh, developed a new recruitment video that promotes the careers in foreign and civil service, and it features USAID employees who represent the agency's diversity. Uh, what about uh, personal interviews when you're hiring someone? What does a person have to do if they, say, live in Idaho and they want to go to work at the State Department? Um, I'd, I'd have to get the details uh, exactly from our uh, HR colleagues, sir, but... My understanding is that we hold virtual interviews with, with uh, uh, people in all across the age, all across the world. So a person does not have to appear personally? Uh, currently, no. Yeah. Go ahead. Thank you for the question. Um, we also do remote interviews at this point with that I mentioned earlier. And so we have been able to increase our reach across the nation, the middle parts as well. I'm from Ohio, so I think this is very important. Um, we have expanded our diplomats in residence, so we are going to be sending them to more uh, college campuses. We hold recruitment events across the country um, and overseas as well, because they're Americans st studying abroad. We use our hometown diplomat uh, program that I have 
participated in many times over my 30-plus career. Uh, when I've gone home to the Midwest, to Ohio, and to neighboring states, reaching out to colleges and universities and community colleges in states that are not on either coast. We have informal diplomats and in residents. I started one myself when I left the State Department in 2017. I reached out to colleges in Ohio to offer my services to support students who didn't have access to those Washington, D.C. universities to talk to them about the Foreign Service exam, to help them prepare for it, to look at internships in the Washington, D.C. area, if they were going to be studying here, or virtual ones that would help give them a leg up. I've had conversations with other retirees who are doing that in different parts of the country as well. And finally, we've started a... Um, collaboration with the Association of Community Colleges, because as we all know, you don't even need a college degree to join the Department of State. You have to pass our entry, our entry procedures. So you don't have to go to a four-year college on either coast or in the middle of the country. Community colleges have an amazing array of Americans who would bring background, experience, and knowledge that we need, and so we are doing additional outreach in that area as well. It also, community colleges have a wide array of Americans, extremely diverse, whether it's geographic, racial, ethnic, background, et cetera, that we want to reach and tap, and we are taking strides to do so. What, what percent of uh, college campuses do you think that uh, the, the State Department visits recruiting each year? I, probably not exact, but can you give me a, a general sense of that? Thank you. Our time's up, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me thank both of our witnesses for your service to our country. Um, we thank you for taking on this challenge. Diversity at the State Department is critically important, as both of you have said. America's strength is in our values, and we should be judged by our actions. So diversity is a very important goal that we need to obtain. We also have so many challenges uh, in international diplomacy. We need all the talent of all of Americans uh, in our State Department. And then for effectiveness of our foreign policy, we need a workforce that represents this nation. So for all those reasons, it's critically important that we achieve the goals that you have expressed. So the chairman's numbers are extremely disappointing. We've lost over a decade of progress in diversity at the State Department. That is difficult to make up. It takes time for us to achieve these objectives. And yes, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for holding this hearing. This hearing is solely focused on this issue. But I want to tell you, we've raised these issues with senior representatives at the State Department at many hearings on oversight of the department generally. And I'm going to tell you, I've heard some of the same replies from those officials that I'm hearing today. So I am concerned that we really are going to see progress. And I, 
I point out the GAO report that was issued in 2020 that showed the deficiencies in regards to what we needed to do on diversity. And then last week, they issued the report, State Department Additional Actions Needed to Improve Workforce, Workplace Diversity and Inclusion. And it points out to the deficiencies in performance measures and accountability. I've heard you mention, Madam Ambassador, that you are dealing with performance and accountability, but we haven't seen the specifics. So how can you reassure this committee that you have listened to the challenges we've had for a long time at State Department, not having adequate performance measures and not having adequate accountability to make sure we achieve our objectives? What's difference, what difference are being taken under your leadership? Thank you. Thank you, Senator, for the question. It was important from the very beginning when we started this mission that it be clear this time is different. Our credibility with our workforce demanded it. Our credibility with you and the American people demanded it. And so we have taken concrete steps with regard to accountability <coughs> for actually moving this forward. In addition to putting the need for support for DEIA in our performance evaluations. Again, this was a clear signal to all of our workforce from top to bottom that this work is important, that we're taking it seriously, that it is going to count with regard to your ability to be promoted in the Foreign Service. And it's for senior leaders down to entry level. Everyone has to address this. It is part of the civil service job performance elements for those who supervise. So we're sending a clear signal there. We've released guidance on integrating DEIA into our post-integrated country strategies. So this isn't Washington focus. This is around the world. We have strengthened our policy on vetting. We get back to that accountability. People can talk the talk, but are they doing their best to ensure that we have the best representing our nation? One of the ways that we have done this is to ensure that I am on the committees that select senior positions, chiefs of mission, deputy chiefs of mission, deputy assistant secretaries, and principal officers. So everyone heading up the ladder understands that this issue and their support, participation, impactful work on this issue is going to count with regard to whether they are going to be tapped for leadership positions. So those are things that we've done with regard to accountability so that people understand that we're serious. And we continue to make the point in our actions and in our words because we know that we have a credibility gap. We know what those numbers are. So let me just conclude by, you, you started by saying that you've invested a lot of resources in getting the specific demographic information about the workforce broken down by department, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Will you make that information available to this committee Absolutely. on a regular basis? Yes. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador Abercrombie Winstanley. The Biden administration, I believe, is staffed by radicals. Uh, 
the State Department has consistently alienated our friends and appeased our enemies. You're empowered as the State Department's first standalone Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. Your mandate is to promote a concept on the left called equity, which I think is nothing more than brazen discrimination. You were appointed in April 2021, and as you extensively testified this morning, you introduced fundamental changes to the State Department hiring practices in line with the mandate of equity to affirmatively and aggressively discriminate. A year after your appointment, in April 2022, the State Department released its, quote, equity action plan to integrate <coughs> these so-called equity principles into, quote, all aspects of State Department foreign affairs. That very week, just days after you published the equity action plan, and one year after you began your tenure, a senior State Department official broadly distributed what I consider to be a very troubling email. I have a copy of that email next to me. Let me read from a part of the email. The email says that hiring practices have developed inside the State Department so that, and I'll quote, that certain candidates could not be hired because they have a disability. They are white men. They are straight white men. They are not of the, quote, right religion. All of these are verbatim quotes from the email of a senior State Department official. My first question to you is, did you clear this guidance? Thank you for the question, Senator. Um, I've never seen that before. You've, ne you've never seen the email before? I've never seen it. So you didn't know it had been sent? This is the first time I'm seeing it, sir. Well, do you, do you know that it is happening? That the State Department perceives, and this is, I believe, as a result of your work, that they have a mandate to discriminate against, as the email says, to discriminate against people with disabilities, to discriminate against white men, to discriminate against straight white men, and to discriminate against people that are not of the, quote, what, right religion. I'm not sure what that meant, but I suspect it meant that if someone is a Christian. I don't know that because that's not what the email says. Are you aware these practices are happening at the State Department? Again, thank you for the question. Uh, I am definite and certain that they are not happening at the State Department. But again... So do you believe the senior State Department official who sent this email was lying? Senator, I, I can't comment on not... I don't know who that's from. I don't know if it's, I've never seen it before. So. so you're the chief diversity officer and you're arguing you are certain discrimination is not happening at the State Department. Is that right? Is that, is that what you're testifying? That's what you I, just said. I am saying that it is against the law and we certainly are not overtly or on purpose breaking the law in the Department of State. Certainly there are, uh, members of our organization who do discriminate, who do harass, who do bully, which is why we are trying to put in place programs to address it and to strengthen accountability for those who do so, indeed break the law. So you didn't clear this guidance. 
and after it was sent, you're testifying now that you remained unaware of it, so no one, no one showed it to you. You were in the State Department for a year. You were empowered in your position in an unprecedented way. In your testimony, you talked about creating a DEIA data working group about hiring practices and a dedicated DEIA core precept. And your testimony is you didn't know that this discrimination was happening. My, my staff can transmit to you the exact header and the details of this email. Okay. But I have to say, Ambassador, I find it a little bit amazing that this discrimination is being reported to be ongoing in the administration and you are professing to be unaware of it you know, I'm reminded from a line from the movie Office Space. What would you say you do around here? What is your job if not to stop discrimination? And unfortunately, I believe what your job in practice is, is encouraging this discrimination. This is a manifestation. You just said a minute ago in testimony, your hiring and promotion in the State Department will depend on complying with the edicts from your office. Is it good for the State Department and good for the United States government to be actively discriminating based on disability, based on race, based on being straight white men, or based on not being the right religion? Is that good or bad? Uh, Senator, as I'm looking at the email, it does appear to me, and my eyesight is not great, that people have reported its comments that certain candidates so what it says is, unfortunately, over the past several months, a number of people have reported comments that certain candidates could not be hired because. Right. So these right. are employees at the State Department saying, we can't hire someone because, and here's what the email lists, they have a disability, they're white men, they're straight white uh, men, or they're not of the right religion. Indeed. And so I would say comments does not at all say it is indeed happening Comments from hiring people saying we can't hire them because of it. Time of the senator has well expired. Uh, I would ask the senator to submit copies for the rest of the committee so we could see it. And if there's an attribution, which I don't understand if there is or isn't one, if there's an attribution, then that person should come forward and it should be fully investigated what he has to say. Otherwise, we have an anonymous entity. Um, the next person is um, Senator Bookham. I want to I want to thank the uh, chairman who's been championing this issue not just in the State Department but uh, throughout our society for a long time. Um, I also think that I state the obvious when I say that all through the private sector, uh, through companies that are run by people all across the political spectrum, they see diversity as a strength. We know that this, from Harvard Business School studies to uh, big consulting firms like McKinsey, companies do better when they have diverse teams at the table. Uh, my mom, having been an HR officer for IBM, focusing on these issues way back in the 70s and the 80s, uh, understands that their competitive edge was improved by making their workforce more reflect the population of the United States. And as someone who's traveled around the, the, the world now in the privileged office that I hold, I have to say it's always disappointing when I sit in a State Department team in a foreign country and see very little diversity. 
Um, not because I just like to see diverse folks, but because I know diverse teams are better teams. And that's why I'm extraordinarily grateful for the mission that you both hold and the work that you both do. Um, again, having grown up at a kitchen table, uh, listening to a mother that was trying to help serve the bottom line of IBM by making more diverse teams, I know how difficult it is on everything from pipeline issues to even retention issues, because often when you promote diverse candidates, because there is such a paucity of them, uh, they have a lot of demands for uh, other opportunities. So I just want to say thank you, first and foremost. I know your dedication to your mission. I know the hill that you have to climb. I know if, as the, as the, as the, uh, as the chairman uh, put forth, we have a lot of really urgent work to do. And again, this is not just a radical uh, uh, agenda of some left-wing politician. Uh, this is an agenda that I see from the tech industry, uh, from uh, manufacturing, uh, across the board in the United States of America. We know when we draw from the full talent of this country, we are so much better. Uh, Tim Scott and I, again, a bipartisan way, both understood that one of the biggest barriers to often getting folks in is just the experiences they start having as young as college students and for paid internship programs. Uh, we put forth a bipartisan bill for paid internships. Um, I was very happy to see, um, even though the bill has yet to pass, that there was $10 million put in the last budget in the State Department. Um, I'd just love to hear how that is going and um, if there's some things that you might be able to tell me uh, that we should be thinking about as we look forward to trying to create that pipeline of people seeing this as an experience in a possible uh, profession. Thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, I, I, I must take the question back for details to my colleagues in GTM, but I know that people are hard at work getting ready uh, the program to start our paid internship program. One of the most important things is to have the money to continue it. We don't want to have it for one round of young people who need the money, who deserve the money. It's going to allow us to reach a wider array of Americans and bring them in to our organization. And we don't want it for just a limited time. We need a steady full pipeline. And so that would be my request on that. But additional information, I know we're planning for the fall and people are hard at work. Yeah, no, it's extraordinary. I know when the CBC started off, Congressional Black Caucus started offering paid internship programs here in, uh, in the Capitol, it made such a big difference because so many students don't apply for internships because they're not paid. And so I appreciate you affirming uh, that. Uh, can I also uh, ask you, uh, one of the things the GAO, GAO's 89 and 20 reports indicated is the State Department hasn't really been successful in identifying what are some of the barriers towards hiring uh, when it comes to uh, uh, hiring and advancing women and minorities in the department. Uh, the recent 2022 report acknowledged significant improvement, um, uh, but that there's still a lot of work to do, be done. But the recommendation from the Government Accountability Office is that the department create a plan to improve its barrier analysis uh, pr uh, process. So that's the challenge. And in your view, what's hindered the State Department with regard to identifying uh, the barriers to hiring a diverse workforce in the first place? Thank you, Senator. Um, being diplomatic, uh, I would say more resources and focus on actually doing it was necessary. It is one of the main tools that my office used. So we have four barrier analyses uh, underway as we speak. 
Um, and so we are going to take a hard look because that's how we find out what we need to do. We've got to have that. So we've, that my office focused very much on barrier analysis. Uh, well, listen, I, I will submit some other questions for the record. I just want to say you all are great patriots. If this country is going to compete on the playing field uh, that is an international global playing field right now, we can't leave our best talent, uh, some of our best talent on the sidelines and on the bench. So what you all are doing is making our country stronger and better in a more increasingly complex and challenging global world. And I am deeply, deeply grateful for your work. And I, I celebrate you both. And my office is here to help in any way we can. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. As, uh, before I call on, on, on uh, Senator Rubio, I, I was just struck. Um, our colleague made the declaration that equity is discrimination. So I thought that maybe I had, uh, in my schooling, lost the concept of what equity was. So I looked up, um, according to Oxford Dictionary, equity is defined as the quality of being fair and impartial, the freedom from bias or favoritism. So if equity is discrimination, then I assume justice uh, under that view is inequality. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> Ambassador Abercrombie Winstanley, um, the President's executive order, I think it's 13985, it provides a, a list of underserved communities and it mandates that executive agencies seek to promote equitable, fair and impartial outcomes for those communities. And, and I, I too believe not only is diversity our strength as a country, um, but um, if in fact our workforce does not reflect our population, then it merits a inquiry into what are the impediments? Are there any artificial impediments that are leading to that outcome? And in the list of um, of the underserved communities are, are groups that have historically faced discrimination in this country on the basis of their race, their religion, their gender. But it also includes a list of other groups. First-generation college students, which, which I happen to be, people with limited English speaking ability, immigrants, the elderly, former convicts, people from rural areas, military spouses, single parents, all good groups. I'm just curious if we include all the people that have been discriminated against historically, plus all of these other groups, who is not an underserved community? Thank you for your question, Senator. Um, I can tell you that my office looks at this two ways. A, that our responsibility uh, is focused on those groups who have been historically underrepresented in the Department of State who are protected classes. And so that is a more narrow list of people, the first group that you mentioned. The reality is, as we work to remove barriers to those groups, we are in fact leveling the playing field for every group. We're focused on making merit-based decisions. So removing those artificial barriers. So when we do things like ensure that people can interview for the Department of State via a virtual uh, technique. While it might indeed help uh, groups that are in the center of the country or from families that can't afford a $1,000 plane ticket to fly to San Francisco or Washington, D.C., it's also going to touch on other groups of people who also have that problem. So in that way, we are able to hit that wide variety of 
No, I, and I, I understand, but I mean, when, when, when you add to the, when the, and I know you didn't write the executive order, but what I'm saying is that when underserved communities expands to includes, yeah. you know, all these other groups, which are all, I mean, there's nothing, I understand the struggles or the challenges of each of these groups individually. It just seems like we've really narrowed the pool of people who we don't, do not consider underserved to a very narrow category of people, which, which obviously begs the question, um, you know, what in, information, do we keep a list of, for example, the religious affiliations of all the employees? Um, do we keep we do. a list of everybody's ethnicity? Yeah. Uh, we collect limited information on uh, demographic information, and we have a number of employee organizations that group around many of these other characteristics that you've mentioned, uh, whether it be um, singles at state, working parents at state, uh, veterans, none of those are protected classes per se, but they do have issues that employees talk about, work with our HR, our global talent management to ensure that they have a, a level playing field and the ability to serve to the best of their ability when they're in the department. I, I guess my point is I don't know how we can possibly make these efforts to help these groups, broad array of, of individual groups that have been defined as underserved without collecting information about all of these topics. Are they the first to go to college in their family? What's their religion? What's their race? How, what do they speak English? Uh, yeah. Are they immigrants? I mean, that's the, the, that's the point I'm trying to make. We're collecting a lot of information. My time is short. I did want to ask you, um, I'm curious how U.S. interests were advanced uh, by promoting a film festival in, in Portugal that, that highlighted... Uh, Min Ban, which uh, is a film about a 17-year-old boy who has sexual relations with an adult bartender, and Saint Narcisse, uh, which I think is how you pronounce it, which is a film about incestuous twins. Um, how would promoting, which was part of some sort of drag queen film festival in Portugal, how does that advance our national interest and how much taxpayer money was spent putting on this film festival? Thank you for the question, Senator. I will take it back to get an answer for you. I do not know. You're not familiar with this? Uh, I am not familiar. So you don't, we don't, you don't know how much we spend or how many State Department employees work? You're just not familiar with the topic? I'm not familiar with those films or that festival. So. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, do you handle festivals as part of your portfolio? I do not. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Senator. Well, does she handle? No, no, Mr. Chairman. Do, that's not the point. The point is it's part of the diversity. The point is I just want to clarify for the record that well. she does not handle festivals. It's a legitimate question, and I look forward for her to get back. She handles di diversity and equity issues, which is, was but, part of a diversity but, and equity but, initiative. But that, that initiative isn't necessarily one that is diversity and equity. It may it have been part actually of the was advertised as such, program. Mr. Chairman. It was advertised as such. Okay. Well, then I look forward to seeing the answer to that as well. Uh, Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Menendez and Ranking Member Rish, and thank you uh, to our two witnesses today. Uh, I am so pleased that you are here. Uh, I think this shows intentionality and leadership by this administration. Uh, I don't often make a practice of responding to comments by my colleague, the junior senator from Texas. It's not often productive necessary or even relevant to the conduct of hearings before this committee. But today I feel I have to. Um, he launched into a diatribe against the administration announcing that in his view the Biden administration is run by radicals and he cited as evidence for that directly your job roles. The fact that there is now a chief diversity officer at the State Department and USAID. 
Well, I have a little experience with this field from my time in the private sector. I actually spent eight years at a global manufacturing company and a global manufacturing company that is a profit-making enterprise, not a social service organization, over several years in consultation with McKinsey, its leadership concluded that the demonstrable lack of diversity in our company in who was being recruited and trained and hired and promoted and who made the key leadership decisions was having a demonstrably negative impact on outcomes. This was not some woke agenda. This is something that the vast majority of America's highest performing, most profitable companies have also concluded. I just took a quick look here in the last few minutes online, and I'll tell you that the following corporations have chief diversity officers. 3M, Dell, Hilton, Nationwide, Walmart, the list can and should go on because a chief diversity officer is someone who is at the table in a C-suite in a company making recommendations, suggesting strategies for how to make sure that the most talented possible people end up working for that company. It requires intentionality. It requires strategic investment. If we're going to have the best possible Americans serving us overseas as diplomats and development professionals. Now in the dozen years I've been blessed to have the chance to serve here in the Senate, I've also had the incredible opportunity to meet foreign service officers and USAID development professionals overseas. These are very tough jobs. They are very demanding and it requires our very best. So I simply wanted to ask both of you, how important is sustained effort at making progress in ensuring that the two agencies you help serve and lead are in fact recruiting and retaining and promoting our very best, which requires diversity in terms of the recruitment pool and inclusion in terms of how the cultures of the entities work and equity in terms of the opportunities in your workplaces. How important is it that we sustain our investment in paid interns, something that we in the Senate have seen in our own offices makes a critical difference in who we are able to recruit and retain in our offices. How important is it that we sustain the wrangle and pickering and pain fellowships? How important is it that we have a chief diversity officer for state and AID, not just in this administration, but in the next and the next and the next? If I could ask one question of the two of you today, it would be how important is sustained effort? around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Madam Ambassador. Thank you so much for the question. It is key, and the statistics that the chairman put up earlier about how minimal our progress has been over past years makes the case for me. That is why putting resources, personnel, dedicated, experienced, knowledgeable to the issue and having the support from you with regard to continuing the paid internships is absolutely crucial. We are going to change those statistics, but it is going to come from sustained effort, from the leaders, from the workforce itself. And I am certain that we can continue because we've done a climate survey. We know that the vast majority of our employees understand what we're doing and support it. We've got that knowledge already. So we're going to change our organization, but the sustaining it, absolutely key. Yes. Ms. Jell. Thank you very much, Senator, for that 
um, question. Um, at USCID, I believe that we've actually put in place a lot of initiatives and programs that will ensure that our DEI efforts are sustained. Um, for years, DEIA has, um, been, is, has been critical to the workforce there, and I do believe that beyond my tenure, it will continue. Um, we have a respectful, inclusive, and safe environments training, trained over 6,000 staff members across the agency and in our missions and offered over 650 RISE training events and seminars. Um, we are happy to say that our 2022 FS, uh, Foreign Service Officer cohort was the most diverse to date, with a breakdown of 52% making up racial and ethnic minorities. Thank you. This is, includes a higher percentage of black or African Americans at 18%, Hispanics at 18%, and Asians at 14%. Thank you. Thank you both. And, and I just, in, in quick closing, want to commend Administrator Power for coming to Delaware and signing an MOU with our HBCU Delaware State uh, for research and also to open that uh, opportunity uh, channel. Um, and frankly, um, uh, Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield and I and Secretary Blinken and I have spoken about this repeatedly. It's important we sustain this effort. Mr. Chairman, thank you for today's hearing. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the witnesses for the important work that you do. I, I hate it when people act as if there was no history before we walked into a room and pretend that the reality of discrimination against groups of people did not actually happen. Um, many groups of people, Irish, face discrimination, but, uh, but others have faced much more serious discrimination that still needs to be repaired and remedied and the discrimination was not accidental, it was intentional, and the discrimination was perpetrated by the State Department and by Congress. And so the actions that you're undertaking are not just about fairness, but they're also about something very fundamental, which is atonement for past problems that have dramatically reduced the diversity of the federal workforce. The federal workforce was integrated in the years after the Civil War, but when Woodrow Wilson became president in 1913, he issued orders to his cabinet secretaries requiring that the federal civil workforce be resegregated in ways that were directly contrary to African-American employees. And that turned the federal workforce from a model at the time into one that was one of the most harshly segregated at the time. That executive order hurt African-Americans and African-American underrepresentation in federal employment uh, persisted for decades as a result of an action of the President of the United States. What about the United States Senate? Joe McCarthy led a set of hearings in the 1950s attacking LGBTQ employees from this chamber, the greatest deliberative body in the world. Hearings were held, one of which was titled The, Employ the Employment of Homosexuals and Other Sex Perverts in Government. Uh, they let it, that, those hearings led to the issuance of a widely read report that falsely asserted that gay people posed a security risk. The report of the Senate found that gay people were unsuitable because employees because, quote, one homosexual can pollute an entire government office. In response to the Senate hearings and Senator McCarthy's allegations, the Department of State increased persecution of LGBTQ people and more than 1,000 Department of State employees were dismissed because of their sexual orientation. Now, I think it's important that we think about 
people who are not represented for any reason. Are, if they're from rural America, if, if they're from a minority religion, it's all incredibly important. But when this body and this government has intentionally perpetrated policies that were hostile to African Americans or hostile to LGBTQ or hostile to anyone else, how dare, how dare someone come and question your efforts to create an equitable and fair workplace where people who have been historically kicked around by the federal government can see progress moving forward that will make them have confidence that they will be reviewed fairly and on the merit should they want to work for us. So that's why the work that you're doing is so very important to my way of thinking. Now, the GAO reports that have been done about the State Department, I, I want to just focus on one piece of it. Surveys of State Department employees tend to be more favorable about the State Department's recruiting efforts than about the State Department's retention efforts. And as sort of you move further up, in the hierarchy at the State Department, the challenges of representation of communities that have been discriminated against in the past tends to dwindle. Tell us about what you are doing on the retention side to make sure that high quality diverse individuals who get over that tough hurdle and come into the State Department stay and make a career out of it. Senator, thank you for the question. This is a very important aspect of it. You are right. We do better with recruiting than retaining. So we have stood up a retention unit. My office works very closely with them. They have begun exit interviews, and we are getting qualitative interviews. So if someone says they are intending to leave, we're also delving in to the why. They are also going to be doing stay interviews. And I was just speaking about this last evening about habitually doing it at year 19 because year 20 is when you're vested and can leave if you're age 50. And so we are looking to ensure we understand what keeps people going and what is making them think about leaving so that we can correct it before they go. So a lot of attention is going to retention. And Ms. Diallo, do you have any, uh, anything additional to add to that? Thank you, Senator. Uh, just to say that UCID has a very robust coaching program um, where we are providing um, executive coaching to our career, excuse me, career staff. <clears throat> and <clears throat> our ret retention, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, um, our retention um, data in 2022 actually shows that we're at a low at 4.2%, uh, which is down from 77 in 2021. And so I believe that the efforts that we're doing to provide professional development and training is actually um, proving and uh, serving in our benefit. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Chair Thank Shaheen. You. Thank you, Senator Kane. I'm filling in for Senator Menendez, and it just happens that I get to question next. Um, you know, probably even more concerning, Senator Kane, than the restrictions that you cited that the federal government has done over our history is the fact that there are some who want to return to those restrictive policies. And they want to return to them not just in terms of the federal government, but across our society. And that is particularly concerning. Um, so thank you both very much for being here and for what you continue to do on an ongoing basis. 
Last December, more than 200 Foreign Service officers sent a letter to the department expressing concern about access to reproductive services for women serving the country abroad as an FSO or their family members. Can you talk about the impact of that access to comprehensive reproductive services is having on women who and their families who are interested in working for the State Department or USAID? Thank you for the question, Senator. I know that this is an issue. I know about the letter that was written and that our um, leadership has sent out reassuring messages to the workforce about the importance and that our medical um, bureau is looking to provide details about what is available and how support will be provided. And I will ask to take the question back so that I can get you a fully informed response to what steps are being taken. Thank you, because my second question was going to be, is this something that your office is working to address? So I would be very interested in hearing that. And, and um, one of the things that I understand is that nearly 80% of medical officers at the Bureau of Medical Services are men, predominantly white men. So that lack of diversity obviously has an impact on um, those people that are being served by that agency. I would not disagree. You, you don't need to respond to that. That's a declarative statement. Um, but in that same letter from last December, the FSOs expressed, also expressed concern about the inconsistent availability of rape kits. Mm -hmm. And the IG has previously noted that sexual harassment is likely underreported in the department that a key reason is the lack of confidence in the department's ability to resolve complaints, and that this inconsistent access to rape kits and lack of training by staff fundamentally undermines the ability of those who are assaulted to seek justice and accountability for any crimes committed against them. Can you talk about how you're responding to that kind of concern? Thank you for the question, Senator. It is extremely important. Uh, we are working, of course, with the Office of Civil Rights where our anti-harassment program currently sits. Um, I, in my formal remarks, and I'll repeat now, we need more funding because we need investigators to move the uh, investigations open because we have informed our employees about the importance of reporting, of the importance of of eliminating the behavior, but reports of harassment have gone up. So there is increased credibility that we're serious about this, but we need the money to increase the investigators so that we can get to the bottom and in the, in the behavior. So, yes. Um, well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that that's a focus of what you're looking at. Uh, one of the initiatives that I know is not directly under either of your um, portfolios, but that I think is important and helps address the gender aspect of what we're trying to do when we talk about inclusion is the Women, Peace, and Security Act, which was signed in 2017. And it asks us to prioritize uh, policymaking through a gender lens, particularly when it comes to national security. Can you, either of you, speak to whether your offices are looking at the WPS initiative and how that's being integrated in the State Department and USAID. 
Thank you for the question, Senator. I can say that my office does not specifically look at it. It is in the Office of Global Women's mm -hmm. Issues, a wonderful office. Um, and we have our new um, Special Representative for Racial Equity who is taking over the agency equity plan. So that's where those issues lie. But of course, we are cooperative and supportive because it's inside our organization as well as outside our organization. Um, and so I'll leave it there. Nene? Dalla. Thank you, Senator. Um, we actually also, like uh, Ambassador, do not manage the gender program. However, we do have a senior gender coordinator and advisor who also reports to the administrator. And I'll be happy to take your question back and for the question for the record. Thank you. Thank you both. Senator Markey. Uh, Senator Murphy. Thank you, Senator Margie. Senator Margie is next. Uh, I have yet to vote, so I was just going to sneak in one quick question, not take my full time. Um, I appreciate it, Senator Markey. Um, uh, Ambassador Winstanley, I, I appreciate um, our work together. Um, you and I, along with Representative Castro, chaired a um, task force put together by the Truman Center to make recommendations uh, about innovation at the State Department uh, and fostering diversity and inclusion and enjoyed doing that work together. Um, one of the recommendations that we made as part of that report uh, was to um, revitalize the Office of Subnational Diplomacy at the Department of State. This is a capacity that the State Department um, had long ago. I think Secretary Blinken is committed to bringing it back, and we have bipartisan legislation here that would make it a permanent capacity of the State Department. And what it basically does is allows an, an, an ability to organize state public servants, local elected officials to represent the United States abroad. Now, that's just... You know, good diplomacy because China is doing that at scale. Um, we are not, but it also is a really quick way to diversify the voices that are representing the United States abroad. The ability to to, to create a more diverse permanent staffing pipeline can take some time, but you can very quickly um, make sure that we have a diverse set of voices representing the United States abroad if you have more um, state and local actors out there, um, you know, even in brief bursts of diplomacy showing up around the world representing the United States. So just uh, my only question to you is, um, how does the effort to rebuild state and local diplomacy fit into this question of diversity and inclusion work? Thank you, Senator, for the question. I couldn't agree with you more, and certainly having been in leadership positions around the world when we had state and local officials come to visit and sent them out, you know, for delegations or to speak, I know the value of those voices, externally as well as internally. Um, not to take away anybody's thunder, so I, I know simply that we're moving forward with this, and I'll take your question back for uh, further input from the department, but I know we're moving forward. Well, uh, great. Thanks, uh, Senator Murphy, for allowing me to jump in quickly. We have legislation that we can pass or include as part of an authorization bill to create this new uh, office, but I think Secretary Blinken is intending to move forward, um, seeing it as a real benefit to, the, uh, to, to, to our ability to be everywhere and anywhere around the world. Thank you very much, uh, Madam Chair. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Senator Markey, I'm going to leave the hearing in your capable hands since I also have not voted, and I need and, to go and do that. Would I then conclude the hearing? Uh, um, well, Senator Menendez is coming back. 
He is, okay. So I, I would then put the hearing into recess, I think, at that point. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so um, uh, you, you've talked about the importance of using an evidence-based approach to identify barriers to equitable merit-based hiring and career outcomes. How is the Department of State collecting data on diversity, including on LGBTQI plus persons in the department? Thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, we have our uh, employee portal where employees can voluntarily provide information, demographic information about themselves. Um, we are working with, we started working with the Census Department, we're working with another government agency to put together a pilot to break down the LGBTQAI plus uh, nomenclature to ensure that we get it right, but that will allow people to identify themselves because we've already learned from our employees that often they don't provide information because they don't see themselves in the choices available. So we're trying to expand those choices. Uh, Ms. Uh, Diallo, uh, currently USAID collects diversity data sporadically on 70% of the workforce. How would you suggest that uh, uh, AID modify its data collection process to capture to ensure that you are capturing a more full picture of your workforce. Thank you, Senator. I truly appreciate that question and the timing. Uh, we've actually designed our first annual DEIA survey, um, uh, which will capture data across all hiring mechanisms and will establish a baseline of DEIA metrics. Um, this data will be used to evaluate the composition of our workforce and identify any potential barriers in hiring, promotion, professional development, and retention practices. Um, we're hoping to complete this, uh, the, well, the, the design has been completed, but we're hoping to launch it pretty soon. So. Okay, beautiful. And uh, Ms. Dial, in your testimony, you talked about the number of partnerships AID uh, has with minority-serving institutions and how you plan to expand and deepen these partnerships. Uh, I am encouraged by those steps. While there are specific fellowships and programs targeting diversity in AID's foreign service, similar programs do not exist for the civil service. Uh, would you recommend any specific programs or steps that would specifically target diversity in AID's civil service? Uh, target diversity in AID's civil service in, in terms of programs? That's right. Um, well, I believe that we are very intentional with our uh, professional development programs that we have. Um, as you know, it is uh, very difficult to target uh, um, hiring uh, diverse candidates in the civil service. Um, however, we have programs and initiatives across the agency. We have uh, 13 DEIA advisors uh, currently in on hiring more. Um, they are within across our bureaus and missions. And we are, uh, have over 50 DEIA councils um, who are working on initiatives and programs to actually help address that. Um, and a very, very robust um, employee resource group as well. Thank you. Uh, thank you both for your work. The more we can have your agencies look like the United States of America overseas, I think is the better the response we're going to get from the countries that we're dealing with. We are them. We're the product of their um, family members coming to our country and becoming citizens. And in return, that brings an extra level of sophistication. Um, I know that being Irish, as we're on the 25th anniversary of uh, the uh, peace accords 
in Northern Ireland. I know how much interest Irish Americans took in trying to understand and solve those problems. And it was always obviously the Irish who had to solve them, but Americans can play a big role because they have a deeper understanding of the cultural, political, religious uh, underpinnings of, of, the, um, of the countries from which their families came. So I want to thank you uh, both so much for all of your work. And I'll just stop right here. Oh, and, and you'll, you'll back to the chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. Um, let me go through a, f a couple of final questions. Uh, first of all, I just, uh, I don't know the email that was exhibited where it came from, who it's from. Uh, but I will say as a classification, uh, it might fall under the heading that if, I, I, if I'm the one who had everything and now I have to create a more equitable set of circumstances, I don't like having to give up what I had. And there's some of that. I'm sure that uh, there will, will be some who will resent the fact that equity means that you don't get to keep it all, that you're gonna, not going to get 90% of the shop just because that you are from a certain class. Do you ever experience any of that? Thank you for the question, Senator. Yes, I am well aware that I have concerned colleagues about what the change may mean for them. I have been able to, certainly in one-on-one -on -one conversations, town halls, and in the building in Washington, in Charleston I was a couple of weeks ago, and around the world as I travel, I make sure that people can ask questions anonymously because those who have that sort of concern, I want them to voice it. We need to know it so that we can address it and reassure that what we're doing to increase equity is good for everyone. And though, as you say, some people will have to give up some of the marbles, as it were, there is no one in my organization that says, I want something that I didn't earn. I want something that I didn't get because I'm the right person, that I am the best candidate for it, et cetera. Nobody admits to that. So once you put that out there and say, then we're going to make this merit-based, recognizing that that old boy and girls club that is so popular in the Department of State does not include a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds. And so increasing transparency, increasing accountability helps everyone. It is not just underrepresented mm -hmm. groups. They get bullied in the department. And let me ask you, if you're a black, Hispanic woman, uh, LGBTQ, and unqualified, will this help you get a position? It will not. Mm. It will not. Uh, uh, let me ask you a couple more uh, specific questions so we understand, and then uh, we will bring this to a conclusion. Uh, what, if any, technical assistance or other support are you receiving to execute your plans from OPM's recently created government-wide Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, Accessibility, led by Dr. Janice Underwood? Yeah. Um, I have a texting relationship with OPM on these issues. Um, she has been a great supporter. We're talking about what makes a highly effective chief diversity and inclusion office, you know, what... What are the, the resources that are needed? And so we are in those discussions, and I think eventually OPM will come out with a, 
a plan of what, if you're going to be serious about this work, what do you need with regard to staff, with regard to resources, with regard to counsel, information that way, um, where it should sit, et cetera. So OPM has been very supportive and clear in exchanging information with us. It's been very helpful. Uh, let me ask you, uh, are you working, if at all, with NSC's interagency working group on the national security workforce on addressing biases and security clearance processes, accommodating individuals with disabilities, among other issues the working group was charged with in the President's memorandum? Yeah. Um, I will say at the beginning of my tenure, I was having conversations with the NSC. I have not had discussions on that specifically. They just told me to get to work. <laughs> I, I hope you will, uh, uh, in, in, uh, you have a very broad uh, mandate, but very often not being able uh, to, uh, or to have prolonged periods of time to get a security clearance is a, is a hindrance to our success. We have some committee staff that we, we have the challenges of getting them up a security clearance so that they can be in the appropriate setting to help their member uh, guide them through uh, some of the issues that may exist. So I can only imagine at, at state or at USAID that, in fact, if you can't I mean, if you can't get a security clearance because there's something in your background, that's different. Uh, obviously, you can't get it. But if it's because it's taking inordinate amounts of time to get it, it creates barriers to positions. So I hope you'll look at that. Given the series of concerning media stories on the experience of diverse political appointees, what role does your office play in working with the White House to support those willing to serve in this capacity at our government's highest levels to advance our country's global interests? Yeah. Um, I work with colleagues in the Secretary's office to provide support to those political appointees within the Department of State. Um, we are taking steps to make sure they understand how valued and supported and what the resources are within the department. So I can speak for the State Department. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes diverse appointees ultimately face uh, uh, the type of pressure from colleagues that others don't yeah. because they are viewed as less than even though they are eminently qualified. And so that's a unique challenge as well. Let me turn to budgets and resources. Uh, State's DMR McKeon noted that there was substantial funding in the department's budget to support your efforts and implementation efforts throughout the agency at our budget hearing earlier this year. Administrator Power also indicated strong support for DEIA efforts at her hearing before the committee. This is a question to both of you. Have you been able to onboard permanent staff with the proper expertise to complete your mandate, including data analysts and legal counsel to assist in identifying, investigating, and eliminating barriers to workforce diversity? Uh, thank you for the question, Senator. We, you know, started off with nine and then moved it up to 12 uh, full-time equivalent. Um, we, I believe, are filling our last position uh, shortly of that 12, but we also have detailees. Um, I can say with great gratitude that there are a number of people in the department uh, who are able to do details or wide tours who are interested in the mission of this office. And so we, we have very strong staff. Everybody is overworked. 
Um, we are looking very much to bring on additional data scientists. I, and so I think in my formal remarks, I did ask for a continued support because the barrier analysis is our main tool. Mm-hmm. We cannot convince anybody of anything if we do not have the data. So is the budget, uh, I'm asking you, this is a direct question and in hearing, mm-hmm. so uh, is the budget as has been presented to the Congress as it relates to your mission going to allow you to do that or do you uh, or would you not be able to do that under the existing budget that's being that's being proposed understood i certainly would say that we are going to make significant progress with the budget that we have but recognizing that the secretary is the one who decides and you know omb in the white house where where the money goes and so we we make our case and we're going to do great work with the budget that we get. Well, I appreciate you're going to do great work with whatever you get. I'm sure you will do that. The question is, is what you will get necessary to meet the mission? And I'm not clear that that answer is yes. How, how about at AID? Thank you, Senator. Um, and we thank you for the $9.5 million, uh, that we have currently in, for FY22. And we've made a request for $20 million for FY23 uh, for an increase. Um, as we have just launched the DEI strategic plan, um, as, we're, as we're moving forward into implementation, we'll be better able to assess the appropriate funding level. And mm. we'll be glad to come back to you. <laughs> okay. Well, we'd be glad to hear from you. Um, let me ask you, how in your capacity as CDIO are you working to increase transparency, fairness, and accountability around promotions, particularly? You mentioned that you now sit in on those and other processes giving findings just this May, May 2022 of the Inspector General report that friends and family members of State Department personnel were selected to serve on Foreign Service selection boards in addition to longstanding reports of bias in hiring, overseas assignments, and promotion. This is May 2022. Yeah. I'm going to ask to take that question back for GTM to provide a detailed response. Um, I will say that uh, the department accepted the uh, recommendations of the inspector general and that we are making changes as a result. But the specifics, I would like to make sure I don't misspeak. Um, I will take that question back. Well, I'd like a detailed answer to that because it's May 2022. We established a year ago a chief diversity officer. In May of 2022, I don't expect to read a GAO uh, inspector general's report that suggests that. Um, So I look forward to seeing um, how that ultimately uh, shakes out, and we will be looking for your written response. Um, Now, Ms. Diallo, uh, USAID's workforce comprises more than 10,000 people, approximately 70% of whom are not direct hires, um, e.g., example, foreign service nationals, personal services contractors, institutional support contractors, just to mention some. Diversity data are not consistently collected on non-direct hire personnel, which in my mind leaves us with an incomplete understanding of AID's workforce. Given that persons who serve as contractors make up such a large portion of the agency and often have an advantage in their knowledge of the agency when applying for
for direct hire positions. Is it important to understand the demographic makeup of the non-direct hire population? Thank you, Senator. You're absolutely correct. It is definitely important to understand the demographic makeup of our non-direct hires. And through this DEI survey, which we hope to launch very soon, we hope to capture that data of our non-direct hires. So are you beginning to collect data related to DEIA issues related to non-direct hires? Yes, that is what we hope to collect in this survey. Okay. Um, now, lastly, my, understand is, my understanding, well, two, two final questions. Um, USAID has highlighted four agency programs over the years, the Donald Payne International Development Fellowship, Development Diplomats in Residence, the Pathways Internship Program, and partnerships with minority-serving institutions aimed at increasing workforce diversity, primarily within the agency's foreign service. However, the Payne Fellowship is relatively small, and the only program that guarantees a position at the conclusion of the program, and it also does not target the civil service where Latinos are notably underrepresented. How might these programs be strengthened and what other initiatives are needed to expand diverse recruitment and retention efforts, especially to address underrepresentation in AID's senior ranks? Thank you for that question. Um, since I began in March, uh, we have doubled the uh, candidates and participation of our, uh, or at least the goal is to increase the participation of the Donald M. Payne Fellowship Program. So I believe we currently have 15 and we're hoping to double that to 30 in the next coming fiscal year. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we are working concertedly um, with minority serving institutions. Um, since I began, we've actually moved the coordination of all minority serving institutions under my office, where I will be overseeing with my team the coordination efforts on establishing MOUs, um, partnerships with these um, minority serving institutions, as well as holding four conferences this year, um, where we will are expanding it beyond the HBCU and HSI, but also to include tribal colleges and universities, as well as Hispanic serving institutions. Mm -hmm. One final question to you. Uh, USAID reportedly is in a legal battle with a group of women that alleges they were hired at salaries lower than those of their male peers. According to reports, and I'll quote, the specific goal of their suit is to have their salaries adjusted retroactively with back pay from three years before they made the complaint, which is the legal limit. If they win, the women could receive the back pay as well as related adjustment to their retirement packages. Now, uh, has USAID, I'm not gonna ask you about that specific case, but has UAID studied pay equity related to both sex and to race and ethnicity? And if so, what conclusions have you drawn? Thank you, Senator. Uh, USCID takes very seriously the issue of pay equity, and I was made aware of the um, issue you're discussing. And I believe that they, our HR colleagues have undertaken a robust pay equity analysis, and I believe I will be presented with that in the initial findings this week, and we'll be happy to come back and report back to this. Now, I'd like to know, but I assume that while HR may be, uh, let's say, taking the lead on that, that it is a legitimate question uh, of equity uh, at the end of the day, and that it should be reviewed to determine whether there are institutional biases. I'm not saying that they are, I'm just saying that it is something worthy of being looked at to determine whether there are institutional biases in which 
women are being paid less uh, than other counterparts in the same in the same field. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, well, uh, with the thanks of the committee uh, for your work and your testimony, I'll have a few other questions that I'll follow up uh, for the record. I want to get your ideas about DFC and uh, other entities that don't have uh, something in this regard. Uh, um, we thank you for coming before the committee to give this testimony, tremendous insights, and the opportunity for us to build upon the work that we collectively want to see happen. Without objection, I'd like to introduce a statement for the record from the Government Accountability Office, the, uh, so ordered. The record for the hearing will remain open until close of business on Wednesday, July 27. Please ensure that questions for the record are submitted no later than that date. And with that, this hearing is adjourned.